We did want to offer somewhat of a, a pastoral note, somewhat of a parental advisory, so to speak, that today's message, uh, because we believe in the whole counsel of Scripture, because we want to be true to the text and, and preaching and not avoiding hard uh, conversations and terminology, that today's message uh, is going to probably have some, some terms and things that are not suitable for young kids. Normally, we don't mind uh, kids, junior hires and whatnot in these services. Uh, so today, though, just take that as a, as a word of warning. We have a phenomenal kids program. Our junior high meets uh, first service at 915. Uh, and so, but that's just something for you to have a heads up. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can maybe go watch out in the, in the lobby in the common area as well. I also want to add a, a pastoral kind of warning as well, that today's text, today's story deals with some, some things that might be potentially triggering to some of you in our church. It deals with some abuse, uh, sexual abuse and exploitation. And so I want to also say pastoral that we care about you and we love you but if at any point in today's message if you feel the need to kind of excuse yourself from service I want to invite you to feel led to do that as well too and so this is a heavy message Uh, we've known it's been coming it's arguably the second most popular story of the life of David for unfortunate reasons and so I'd love to pray um, and we're going to dive into today's sermon would you pray with me quickly Lord we pause just to say thank you for being the God of grace the God of mercy, the God of love, who is able to do um, unthinkable things through your love and your power. Be with us today as we hear from your word, as we continue to study. Man, what what does it look like to be a man and woman after your own heart and and a story today that might hit a little close to home? May we know that you are with us, that your spirit is our our source and our guide and our power in this life. Um, Bring our brokenness um, to healing and redemption through your grace alone. Sharon, that we pray. Amen. Well, there are two ways to learn a valuable lesson in life. The first way is what I call the hard way, which is the way of experience, meaning you, you try something and fail, or maybe you try something and succeed, and you learn through experience that way. That's kind of the hard way. Then there is what is maybe the easy way or the wise way, which says that you glean from other people's experiences. In today's story, we're going to look at someone who learns a lesson the hard way, the story as we continue to study the life of David, and we would do be wise to heed this story a couple thousands of years later in a completely different westernized con, uh, context to kind of say, okay, what do we learn? How do we protect ourselves from these same mistakes? And in today's stories, if you grew up going to church, uh, it's probably going to be a little bit different than maybe what you've heard or been led to believe because we're not going to water it down. We're not going to soften it. In some ways, David is a man who is almost put up next to Jesus and people, how they idolize and admire someone who lives in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see today is somebody who, that probably is going to reverse course for a lot of us if we've ever felt that way before. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's where we're going to start this morning. I want to do kind of just a little bit of a fast forward real quick. At this point, King Saul has died and David has assumed the throne. And it's been a nearly flawless rise to the tops. Uh, And so basically from the time we left off David to to the story we're going to see today, a couple of decades have transpired. And all David's been is a model citizen. 
citizen. And that his kingdom has grown to over 60,000 square miles. He put Israel not just on the map, that they, they were the map, so to speak. And at this point in 2 Samuel, the narrator has blazed through years of success and conquest as as a military leader of how David overcame the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Edomites and everybody in between. And then we get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and the narrator slows way down, and he gives us this story a story about brokenness, a story about how we all can find ourselves in the midst of some horrific situations sometimes. Second Samuel chapter 11, we're starting in verse one this morning. It says, in the, spring, uh, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So I want to pause here real quick. This text is setting something else up for us. This is at the time when kings normally go off to war. It's somewhat of like an un- ominous start to a story, right? Once upon a time, there was a king named David. It was springtime. He should be at war, but he is not. You see, back then, kings weren't calling the shots and radioing them in from, from, from a bunker miles upon miles away. They were the ones leading the charge. And not only that, David had what is called the king's scroll. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. That is the king of Israel. Here's how you lead. Here's how you're the first soldier. Here's how you, 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 you manage the front line, so to speak. There is all this wisdom given to him, as well as, as the king of Israel, your number one responsibility was not to have military success. Your number one responsibility was to be a model and an example for the rest of God's people to pursue, not you as king, but to pursue God, to pursue Yahweh as king. And yet what we see is David is already in the wrong place. He is already in his temple. He is in his palace when he's supposed to be at war. And we're going to see that he's become a sedentary king with a dangerous amount of leisure. And something I want to note is throughout this entire story, David's not going to leave his palace He's going to call the shots from his throne with his crown, with his gaudy robe or whatever it is that he wore. He's not going to leave his palace. And some of us might say, well, he's earned that right. He's a little maybe old or tired or weary. This isn't the David that we know. This isn't the David that everybody's come to respect and honor and admire. And there's one word that gets used 12 times throughout chapter 11. And it's the word sent. David is going to sit from the comfort and the confines of his throne and he's going to send over and over and over other people to do his bidding. And we're about to see is that oftentimes conveniences can become our biggest sources of compromise. Picking up in verse 2, it says, So one evening... David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And Saul sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, or Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, and she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So because David got up one evening. So here's a king, not only in his palace when he's supposed to be at war, now he's just sleeping the whole day away. 
Now, naps are common. I'm a, good, I'm a good fan of a nice siesta here and there, but to sleep the whole day away is kind of a big deal. And we see that, that, that David begins to, to live his life with a dangerous amount of leisure. So not only was he at the wrong place, he is now waking up at the wrong time. Do you and I alike not fall into temptation oftentimes when we are in the wrong place at the wrong time? Do you and I alike not often fall into temptation and give in to the things we know we shouldn't? When we find ourselves bored, when we find ourselves with the amount of leisure that we don't know what to do with, I would venture to guess that when you don't keep yourself occupied in the places that you need to be doing, the things you know you ought to be doing, and with the time that you have been allotted is oftentimes a great recipe to give in to temptation. And so here's David. He wakes up from this excessively long nap, and he goes onto his roof, it says. Now, going onto your roof was a common thing because going onto your roof meant you're going to go to the coolest place in, in your living situation. Nothing out of the ordinary. And it says he, he looks down from his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman who was bathing. He steals a look. Man, we might think to ourselves, it happens. But David then takes this look, and he turns it in, to lust. And then he sends someone to inquire about her. Hey, go find out who that woman is for me. And the messenger comes back and kind of gives their report. And I kind of imagine it going like this. Well, well, David, I found out who this woman is. Uh, her name is Bashabar, Bathsheba. She is the, the daughter of Eliam. You know, the man that, that, that you, you valiantly fought next to for decades in war. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your top 30 secret special ops, one of your commanders in your army. That's who this woman is. David, I'm not sure you want to do what I think you want to do. And he does not heed the warning. He doesn't care. And he sends the messenger back to have her brought to him. Is at this point, I think some people try to place some culpability on Bathsheba for what happened next. Like how many of you just naturally assumed, based on what you've heard or what you've learned throughout time, that, that she was bathing on the roof completely butt naked with her stuff hanging out? It says that nowhere in the text. In fact, I would go even further to say that would not have happened even if she was bathing because it says she was bathing because of her ritual cleansing. Her monthly cycle had finished and therefore she was required to, to do a ritual cleansing, which means she was a woman who wanted to follow the customs and the laws of that day. Back in ancient Israel, public nudity was seen as extraordinarily shameful. So even if she was bathing on the roof, chances are she would not have been nude. Some people say, well, then when the messenger went and sent for her to be brought to him, she could have said no. Really? When the king of your country sends for you without any real reason given, you go. No matter what. So let me be tender here of what happens next. But let me also be straightforward. And this is where the, the warning at the beginning of the message comes into play. I don't want to soften this. I don't want to share blame. I don't want to kind of uh, uh, soften what happened. We're not going to do that today. Let's just lay out the facts. You have a king of the most popular and powerful army and nation in the entire world who had six wives and multiple concubines at this time, might I add. 
who inquires of a beautiful woman that he caught a glance of who was minding her own business and has her brought to him because of his position of power. And as it says, proceeds, he slept with her. It does not say, and they slept together. David uses his power after catching a glance and forces himself upon Bathsheba. In our Western 21st century rendering of terms, this is an abuse of power. This is exploitation. And if you choose, you could very well label this as rape. But the Bible doesn't call it rape, Eric, so it's not rape. The Bible doesn't have a word for it. Simply put, there is a victim who is doing nothing wrong and a man in a position of power who sexually assaults another woman. And the text reads cold like this, does it not? There's no, there's no emotion, there's no love. It's just one man acting upon lust in the most selfish way possible. In fact, Bathsheba's gonna be referred to as the woman or the wife of Uriah for the rest of the story until chapter 12. And I don't think the narrator's doing this to say, to, to objectify or demean her. Rather, I think it's the opposite. I think the narrator's trying to make a point here to say, don't you dare lose focus on who and only who is in the wrong in this story. He takes three verses to set up what happened. He wasn't at war when he should have been. He woke up from a long nap. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He saw, he sent, somebody came back, gave him and he didn't care, sent for him, and then one verse. He took her, he slept with her, he sent her home. I think this speaks to how quickly we can all fall into sin. Now, this isn't one bad moment of David's life. This isn't a a small lapse in judgment. This sexual appetite of David has been growing for some time. Remember week two, David and Goliath. The first time David ever speaks in scripture is not, I love God or let's honor Yahweh with our life. The first time David opens his mouth, what is it that he said? Wait, 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 Saul, say say again, just confirm with me, Saul. What do I get if I take down Goliath? I get women in power. Say say, say, say that again, Saul. Yeah, 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 I don't want anybody to dishonor my God, and I want to honor God as much as I can, but, but remind me, you get women in power if I do this. And here he is decades later, abusing both. David had accountability, and he didn't listen. He had accountability in this messenger. He had accountability in the king's scroll. One of the things it says in Deuteronomy is don't let your kings have multiple wives or else they will be given into the lust of their hearts. There was a lingering temptation that he willingly gave himself into. He should have fought it off back then, but he decided not to. I like to think that that the lingering and leisurely nature of David in the palace, wrong place at the wrong time, mirrors the lingering and leisurely nature of how he approached temptation and lust that hung around in his own heart. And so what David learned the hard way, and we would be wise to glean from it in the wise way, is this, is that when we feed our appetites of sin, they don't grow satisfied. They grow more hungry. It's like, Eating pretzels, right? You can't eat just one. You have one and then another. If you're a Seinfeld fan, right? These pretzels are making me thirsty. 
Growing up playing t-ball, um, they had this uh, bubble gum called Big League Chew. You guys know what Big League Chew is? It's like they, they, they someone had a brilliant, hey, I got this brilliant idea. Let's create a gum that looks like dipping tobacco and give it to kids. And someone's like, that sounds awesome. Let's do that. And this stuff was the most glorious 30 seconds of a 10-year-old boy's life. I kid you not. You take out a big wad and you pop it in and you're just hanging out there. And for 30 seconds, it is bliss. It's what angel kisses probably taste like. I don't know, but it was amazing. And then 30 seconds later, all the taste is gone and it goes stale. And if you chew it long enough, it would actually dissolve, leaving you with something that you just need to, to toss and get rid of. That's what sin is like. So what David has learned the hard way. Tastes good at first. Seemingly harmless, but over time, all you're left with is something to discard. You see, little compromises can lead to big consequences. And we can talk about motives until the cows come home. Why didn't it mean it? It was just an off day for me. My friends led me to believe the culture and the context of that time. And in some degrees, there's usually some empathy and some little, I can kind of understand when it's that. But that doesn't make you innocent. That makes you a fool. Because the Bible describes a fool as someone who believes that choices and consequences can be separate. The Bible would define a fool as somebody who has, says, well, here's the inputs that I've chosen, but I don't really want the consequences that come along with that. I didn't mean for the texting to turn into that. I didn't mean for the glances to materialize. I didn't intend for those thoughts to go so far. It was just harmless flirting at first. I was just reading some articles on a website, and then I found myself on those other ones that I know I'm not supposed to be on. But when we feed our appetites of sin, they don't grow satisfied. They grow more hungry. Bathsheba reports back that she is pregnant and David doubles down and he really begins to spiral. Picking up in verse 6, it says, so David sent this word to Joab. He's the guy leading the army, leading where David's supposed to be. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark, a.k.a. the presence of God, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. They are at war, risking their lives for your country, David, might I add, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So here's David, fully aware of the mistake that he's made, fully aware of his sin, and his plan is kind of obvious. He thinks it's shrewd, and it doesn't go his way. He thinks to myself, okay, all I got to do is get Uriah to come home in like the next week, and uh, bada bing, bada boom, then I'm good. That's all I got to do. So he calls for Uriah. Uriah comes back and says, hey, man, how, how's the war? How are things? How are, how's, how's it? How is it? Yeah, is it good? Good? Yeah, yeah. And Uriah probably has two thoughts. Number one, you should know because you're supposed to be there with us. Number two, isn't this what messengers are for? Well, you, you, now that you're here, why don't you go home? I know you've been away from your wife. 
a little bit, freshen up, and I'll send you back tomorrow. Go wash your feet. I'll send you some choice steaks, some prime rib. I'm going to send over 10 bottles of the finest wine from my cabinet, from the palace, and you and your wife just have a great night, and I'll send you back to battle tomorrow. And then he goes home. One thing leads to another. Lays with his wife. Nine months later, Bathsheba gives birth to a son, and as the son grows up in the kingdom of Israel, eh, he looks a little bit like David, but nobody thinks otherwise. According to David, verse 9 should read, and Uriah went home and laid with his wife. And instead it says, Uriah slept at the king's door. Why? To honor God, to honor the fellow troops, the mission from David. Like, isn't this ironic? Uriah the Hittite, it says, which means he was an outsider who believed in David and believed in the God of David who says, I'm going to submit my life to follow after you, David. So here's this outsider acting with more character and integrity towards God and the people of God than the king of God's people himself. Cover up part one fails. And you got to think, this, this probably starts to get under David's skin. You, you not get that sense when he's like, what do you mean he didn't go home and sleep with his wife? Like, uh, are you serious? You're right. I, I don't want you to do anything bad or wrong or illegal or immoral. All I really want you to do is go home, lay with Bathsheba, do the thing, and then you cover up my sin and nobody needs to know. But when we are living in sin, Nothing seems to bother us more than the reminders of integrity, right? I think I've shared this story before, but uh, I went to a Christian prep high school Christian prep high school growing up, and so we had to take a Bible class every semester. In junior year, I was student body president. I got caught cheating on a scripture memory verse. <laughs> Dead serious, true story. Like tried to like write it down and then, and then write it and then, and then totally got caught. The teacher uh, found out, gave me a zero, brought me up in front of the class. Literally said, here is your leader who just got caught lying on a scripture verse. Just let that sink in. We all saved by grace. I'm here today. You know, it's all good. But you go, I had to go back into this teacher's classroom every single day for the rest of the year. And he had this banner on the top that said, life is about choices. But remember, you don't get to choose the consequences. And every time I went back into this classroom, I hated it because it was a reminder of how I fell short. Nothing bothers us more when we're living in sin than reminders of integrity. Last week, we talked about what, what separated David from Saul's whenever David was caught in the past. He would do what is right. He would confess, he would repent, and sometimes he would even take on more responsibility than he needed to. Now he's doing the opposite. Instead of confessing and repenting, he conceals, he covers up, and it leads to more sin. We would do well to ask ourselves that same question. What do, what do I do? What do you do when you're caught in sin? Do you confess and repent? Set up guardrails to never do it again? Or do you try to brush it on the rug, cover it up, and go about your merry way? Cover up part one doesn't work for David, so he tries round two. And and this plan uh, is just even stupider, but he's like, I'm just going to throw a party. I'm going to get Uriah drunk, send him home. Uriah, again, doesn't go home. So now David is just like, that's it. I've had it with this guy being such a good person. I'm going to kill him. And that's literally what he does. 
So he says, all right, you're right, you're going back to war. Take these orders, give them to Joab at the front. And the orders are this. This is, uh, dear Joab, uh, put your right at the front, pull the rest of the troops back and see what happens. Love David. And Joab's looking at this, this order being like, this is the stupidest war plan ever, but he's the king. Abuse of power yet again. And so Joab shows the, the commands to everybody else. Just so everybody knows, this isn't my doing. This is David. We're just following his order. Sure enough, Uriah is killed. This is a straight up assassination plot. Sends a messenger back to David. Tell him it's all done. We need a new plan. And this is what it says. Picking up in verse 25 of chapter 11. So, so David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. A.K.A. such as war. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Jacob. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, second time, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David done had displeased the Lord. David's just tanking here. Sorry to hear about Uriah, everybody, but he was a good man, valiant soldier, one of my best, one of my 30. Such is war. And across town, Bathsheba is grieving, as she should, because not only was she recently sexually assaulted and carrying the child of that man, the man whom she loved and committed her life to was now gone. And when they gave her the story, it was probably the same thing. You know what, Bathsheba? It's the cost of war, unfortunately. We're sorry it came to this. David has her brought again, and he offers to be what is referred to in the Hebrew scriptures as the kinsman redeemer. What that means is when, when, when a lady is widowed and she had children or she didn't have to have children, that another man would step up and treat her as if he was, you know, she was his wife. And this is a story of Ruth in the Old Testament all about the same idea. And so here's David pretending to be all noble. So he steps, I'll be the kinsman redeemer for Uriah. I will take Bathsheba and the unnamed child in because of the man he killed, to marry the woman he sexually assaulted, to father the child he wanted nothing to do with. How noble of King David here. And this is probably where David thinks the story ends. Not how I wanted to get there, but I had to keep my reputation in track. And if the story of David, of this story with Bathsheba, ends here, what does it teach us? The powerful get to do what they want. They get to call the shots, do whatever they please. They get to shirk accountability. They never have to own up for their actions. While everybody else pays the price, picks up the pieces, and justice will never be served. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We think we can get away with our sin, but God sees and knows all. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan. I love that. Just, David, you've been the one doing all the sending. It's my turn now. Sends Nathan, who was a prophet of God, to David. And when he came to him, he said, Here's this parable. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared its food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. If you have a Bible and you're writing, taking notes, circle slept in his arms, circle daughter, and draw a line, and I'm going to show you why that's important here. Verse 4 says, Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man uh, refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, prepared it for the one who had come to him. So here the tables have turned. God sends Nathan. David, since you won't leave your palace, since you think you are protected because of your power and your comfort, I'm coming to you, Almighty oh king of Israel. I know what you did, and it's time for you to learn a lesson. And so Nathan tells him this parable. Here's a rich man, here's a poor man. The rich man takes the poor man's only lamb for his own selfish motives. And there's two interesting things about this parable I want to take notice of. Number one is the parable makes zero reference to mention any sort of fault on this lamb. Because we know who the lamb is in this parable, right? Like it doesn't say, and the lamb secretly wanted to be in the pasture of the rich man. It, it doesn't say, and one day the rich man was walking down the street and he heard the seductive cooing of this other man's lamb and decided to take it for himself. No, no, it just says there was a lamb who was taken and used for another man's gain. The second thing, it says the lamb was like a daughter who slept in his arms. Now we say Bathsheba because we're stupid Americans in the 21st century who don't really know how to read Hebrew. The proper way to say Bathsheba would have been Bathsheba. The word daughter in Hebrew is bat. The word to sleep is skoba. So here's this parable. The man had a lamb, a bat skoba, David, that he took. And David still doesn't get the hint. Look at David's response, verse 5. It says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay the price for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David's life's going to go on and he's going to lose four of his own sons as a result of this moment. Verse 11 so this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. David's anger burns. What a righteous response from such a noble man. This man deserves to die. And God's like, David, the bot you used your power for your desires. Now you will pay the price. And thousands of years later, we're secretly like cheering this on, right? Yes, yeah, get him, God. Sick him. Do it. Yeah, yeah, that's what he deserves. And the question is, what's David's response going to be this time when he becomes aware of it? Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. 
After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. You see, the right response to the wrong thing is always a step in the right direction. But repentance does not reverse the effects of sin in David's life, even though it does reverse his heart. That the best time for David to have fought off temptation was back then in his life. The next best time is to before it strikes again. As you read the story, this unnamed boy is going to become ill and he's going to eventually die. David's going to go into months of mourning, desperately calling out, yearning for God to heal the child, and God doesn't as a punishment for David's sin. And you might say, whoa, 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 time out. Riddle me this, pastor. How is that fair? How is it fair that an innocent child dies for the sin of his father? This child did absolutely nothing wrong, and, and God kills him to let the one who was in sin continue to live? How is that fair? Why does he not pay the price? To that, my response is welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the worst possible thing, death on a cross, happened to the best possible person, Jesus Christ, on behalf of the sin and debt of the world, of you and I alike. How is this fair? It's not. That's why we call it grace. Jesus will be referred to as the son of David. He will die for the sin of the world to pay the price for the sin of humankind that anyone who shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did not deserve to die. We do. Jesus did not earn his punishment. We did. Jesus doesn't have or didn't have debt against the righteousness of God. We do. It's not fair. And yet the son of David dies on a cross to take on the punishment and the sin in the place of another. So what do, you, what do we take from this story? You know, in, in, our, in our bumper it says that a perfect God uses imperfect people. God uses brokenness for his glory. What good, if any good, can come from this story? Verses 24 and 25 is a great reminder of this. This is our last part of scripture for today. It says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. A little bit different of emotion here. And she went, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, and the prophet named him Jedidiah. The word Solomon sounds very similar in the Hebrew to the word shalom, which means peace with God, unity with God, harmony and human flourishing. God is literally saying, you have peace with me. The word Jedidiah, the name Jedidiah means loved by Yahweh. And this is where we begin to see that the grace and the messiness uh, uh, come, come kind of headlong into a holy nature of a merciful God. That God will not remove punishment for sin, but he is also very quick to show mercy. He will not remove promises from David's life, but he won't hold back punishment either. And this is the part of the message that was weighing on me the most the last couple weeks because this is where the kingdom of God and our culture mighty, uh, differs mightily. 
You see, see, on one hand, and rightfully so, our culture is laser-focused on people who have positions of power, who abuse others with said power for their own gain. That's a thing, right? We're all aware? And that is a good thing. Like, like imagine if this story happened today, the social media and the news and the retweets and everything that would be going on with, man, can you believe the king of Israel? Because justice plays a very big role. The empathy needed for Bathsheba, the, 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 the desire for David to get what he's, that is a very warranted thing in this story. Yet on the other hand, and I want to be careful here, because what I feel like would not be accepted in our culture and context today is the mercy and forgiveness that God shows to David. There's almost this sense of like, how dare you, God? How how dare you even consider, let alone offer, such a heinous man who committed such a crime when he knew he shouldn't? Where where do you, and you want me to love you? And you want me to follow you? And you want me to call you Lord of your life? You see, we despise the quick mercy of God until we need it ourselves. I will admit sometimes throughout the history of the church, the church has done a very poor job, maybe not necessarily this church, but churches in general have protected victimizers and glossed it over saying, well, we all sin, we all fall short, grace, mercy, blah, 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 blah. But as the church and as the people of God, we have this seemingly impossible task desire justice towards the abuser while seeking to bring comfort and empathy for the abused, while all the more believing wholeheartedly that through the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption of all people is possible through the work of God in the life of anybody. You see, I feel for Bathsheba in this story because she has the difficult mountain to not just live with this reality, to live with this man. But she has to learn to trust not just her God, but the God of David again. There's an unfortunate and fortunate reality for all of us in this story. Unfortunately, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short like David. And I'd make the argument that whether in big or small ways, there's probably chances in which we have been the victimizer, whether we know it or not, or realize it or not. Fortunately, we all receive endless amounts of grace and mercy from God. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, just like David. And fortunately, even despite our past actions, we too can be called sons and daughters through repentance to pursue God yet again. You see, this story gets written down after it happens. First and second Samuel get written after David dies. And they still give him that moniker, a man after God's own heart. It's not like, well, he's a man after God's own heart until 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then eh, let's cross that out. And it speaks to something about the redeeming work that God can do through absolutely anybody if they repent and chase after him yet again. And here's the other part. Unfortunately, to some degree, all of us have been the victim. You might be here this morning and who you resonate with this in this story is Bathsheba. Because her story is just like your story. You might be here today and you resonate with Bathsheba. Just you're a guy, not a girl. That somebody in the position of power took advantage of you and left you to pick up the pieces. 
the unfortunate reality of, of I know many people in our church who that's part of who they are. That brokenness exists with them. The fortunate part is that no matter your story, no matter your brokenness, God can restore it for his glory. If you go to the lineage of Jesus, you'll notice there's four women who are named. Number one, there's Rahab, prostitute. Number two, there's Tamar. We're going to read about her next week. Number three is Ruth, the unwanted widow. And number four is Bathsheba. God says, I can take this and use it for me, even though I did not design you to have it. Here's the point I'm trying to make is that God doesn't orchestrate brokenness, but he can use it for his glory. God's grace doesn't make people innocent. God's mercy does not gloss over sin, but brokenness can be used for God's glory. The story is not just about how how abuse of of power tragically ruins lives and, and families. It's about the grace and mercy of God that in some holy and sovereign way that I can't even explain it, I can't tell you here's how it works and here's what you have to do and here's the amount of of prayer and all this. I don't know how to do it other than saying is that, that I know it to be true in scripture. Therefore, God has this ability to bring healing and restoration and shalom to any brokenness in life. And so I wanna close with hopefully some, some peace and hope for each and every one of us today. And that's in the kingdom of God, we must believe and know that the fallen can rise again. In the kingdom of God, you and I, we are not judged on our worst decisions. We are je- judged on our best decision, our best decision to believe that we are sinners in need of grace and that Jesus died, uh, that on the cross paid the punishment for our sins, that if we believe, we have eternal life. That if we take responsibility, we own our consequences, we confess and repent, God is good and he is faithful to restore us. But that, remember, that does not absolve the punishment that might come along with it. In the kingdom of God, there's no one who's ever not seen. In the kingdom of God, there's no one who's ever not loved. In the kingdom of God, sin is never passed over, but it is put on by another. In the kingdom of God, God takes sin very, very seriously, and we should too. And it's not just, hey, watch your leisure and downtime a little bit better. It's not just, you know, hey, uh, watch your eyes and what you look at and and the type of movies you watch and, you know, try not to have a computer by yourself and, you know, when you're home alone or whatever it is. It's not just, hey, don't abuse your power. Don't let lust run your heart and mind. In the kingdom of God, we're not just called to put off certain things. We're called to put on certain things. And so what are we called to put on from this story? It's one thing. It's to pursue the heart of God more today. If you want to ask the question, what could have stopped David to have not done this? He had the accountability. He had the guardrails. He had the warnings. He did not heed them. What would have protected Bathsheba? What what would have kept David in line of what he should have been doing? It's if he was pursuing the heart of God more today than the day before. That's the answer and that's the solution. So if you want to take them, if you want an application, this is it. how, How do I protect myself? from acting the fool like David, pursue the heart of God more today than ever before. How do I recover after what's been done to me? Pursue the heart of God than ever before. How do I move on if I have been the abuser in a situation? Pursue the heart of God more today than ever before. In the kingdom of God, sin is met with unfathomable grace. 
And the way in which we win wars of heart and mind is to answer the call to pursue God more today than ever before. So I wanna wanna close with just a, a, a pastoral kind of moment this morning. I don't know everyone's story. I don't know what you walked in with today. I don't know what brokenness and baggage you might be handling. So let me just address a couple things. Number one is if throughout this story you have resonated with Bathsheba, let me say to you that you are loved here and you don't have to fight this alone. There's a great uh, ministry that exists nationwide in, in, our, in our area called Celebrate Recovery. For anybody with hurts, habits, and hangups can find arguably one of the most incredible communities where you're not gonna feel judged or cast aside and people will walk alongside of you. I also wanna say we are a church that believes in the power of professional counseling and therapy. And that if, if that is where you are in your life, We have counselors that we trust implicitly to walk alongside of you as you navigate this. And let me say something, and I'm going to flip the script. And I'm going out on a ledge here because our culture doesn't like this. It's if you're here today and you resonate with David. Meaning you have been the victimizer. You have been the abuser. Heed the warnings of God, first and foremost, but second of all, know you are loved and cared for here as well. Do not try to handle this on your own. Do not keep it covered up. That we want to come alongside of you as well to get you the help that you need. Man or woman, young or old, God does not orchestrate brokenness but he can use all brokenness for his glory because that is the power of the son of David. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship today? Lord, it's hard to know what to pray in this moment. It's hard to know what to lift before you on on behalf of our church, on behalf of our people, other than we trust you, we know you, Give another day to those who desperately just need another day. Give boldness and courage to those who need to seek help, to move on. And that's not to say that through forgiveness or grace, we have to go back into certain situations or relationships, but the amount of weight it takes to continue to put one foot in front of the other. May we be a church that helps come alongside of those people. Pray for anyone here today who is more like David from this story. May you convict them to the point that they confess and repent, but may they also know that they are loved, cared for, and desire to be shepherded just like David. May they have the boldness and the courage to reach out, to seek help as well too. We love you, Lord, and we offer this time as a chance for your grace to transform our lives. Thank you for being the God who loves us, cares for us, that we are sons and daughters because of Jesus Christ.
It's in your name that we pray. Amen.